good to see all of you this morning, and uh, we're glad you're here. Special thanks to the worship team. Uh, there were a couple of folks that at the last minute couldn't come this morning, and then there was one person who had to step out after the 8.30 service, so uh, thanks for what you do, and thanks for doing it so well. If, uh, if you're visiting, let me tell you what we're doing. We are, this is the third installment of a new sermon series that it's, our plan is to study this book for the rest of the fall. We're looking at the second book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark. And as I've mentioned before, even though it's the second one in the New Testament, you know, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it's believed and, and almost certainly true that it's the first of the four Gospels written. Uh, written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses who saw these things. And I'm going to mention a little bit more about that in a second. But if, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can follow the text just there in the bulletin. We're in Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. If, if you do any amount of flying, do you remember the worst flight you've ever been on as far as turbulence or storms? So we're not talking snack service, we're talking... There's that, there's that kind of bad flight, but we're talking storms and turbulence. The worst one I was ever on was when I was in college. And um, actually, my, my mom was here at the first service, and we made eye contact because she was on this flight, too. It was on Braniff Airlines, and this would be in the late 80s. And we, f- uh, we flew through a storm, and I just thought, good grief, this is bad. I, but I didn't know if it was abnormally bad or not. And two things convinced me that this was abnormally bad. One was I was sitting next to a guy that he was in some kind of sales. I don't remember what kind, but he said, man, I fly every week. This is the worst storm I've ever flown through. And I thought, great. <laughs> but the, the kicker was something happened during that flight, and I had never seen this before, and I've never seen it since. And I've flown more since that happened. Uh, a flight attendant was making her way down the, you know, down the corridor, and we hit one of these just terrible dips in the turbulence, and I saw her face, she went, that's when I went, whoa, because, you know, since then, I've, and this has become kind of, a, kind of a gauge of how are we doing, you know, how bad is this storm, or how bad is the turbulence, is I look at the face of the flight attendant, and even when it's, it rattles you, I don't fly a lot, I fly every once in a while, you know, it's normal to them, they know normal, even she showed that was abnormal. All right, this, this account that we're about to read is uh, it's not only recorded here in Mark, it's in Matthew and Luke as well. And different ones emphasize different things, but all of them are showing you a boat with several men and Jesus on the boat in the Sea of Galilee. And not all of these men were former fishermen, but some of them were. Some of them vocationally had logged a lot of hours on the Sea of Galilee in storms. And so they knew the norm. And the gospel writers are letting you see their faces that this is not normal. They are in an abnormally severe storm. And here's the thing. The gospel writers are letting you see that it was, it was in this episode that something became more obvious to the disciples than it had ever been. Something about Jesus became more evident than it had ever been up to this point. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took 
him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we're dependent on you for everything, and it may feel to us that we can think without you or listen without you or draw our conclusions without you or feel without you, but we can't. And so we ask that especially in the next few minutes that in our thinking and listening and feeling and reasoning that you would accomplish everything that you want to accomplish in our midst. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you caught this when I just read the text, but the word, the adjective, great, appears three times. Uh, let, let, me, let me walk back through these. Verse 37 says, And a great windstorm arose. And then at the, uh, at the end of verse 39 it says, There was a great calm. And then later in verse 40, it says that they were filled with great fear. So just for our purposes this morning, let's, let's structure this with those, with those three points. Uh, let's, let's look at those as the, the three sermon points. There's a great storm, and there's a great calm, and then after that, there's a great fear. Great storm, great calm, great fear. First off, this, this great storm... Uh, in your mental picture of this, I don't know how it registers with you, but if this is a story you've heard before, maybe you had any kind of preconception of what this would have looked like, don't picture the day. Picture the night. Now, the sea or the ocean at night will scare anybody. I mean, it's no coincidence that Jaws starts at night, you know, in the ocean. That was Spielberg knows exactly what he's doing. This is on the, a large sea, but picture that it's, it's dark as well. Now, let's start off in verse 30, 36 here. Leaving the crowd where he's been teaching, and this is important. The context before this is that this big chunk of Mark chapter 4 is Jesus teaching parables. Parables about what? Parables about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom like? And we could also ask, who is the king. And I'm sure the disciples would have said, well, that's obvious. God's the king. Okay, so far so good. Uh, Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Why are those last two phrases important? He got on the boat, just as he was, and there were other boats with him. Now, I mentioned two weeks ago when I started this series that I, I don't like to give you just tons of introduction 
when I do the first sermon in a, in a series, because I feel like if you're not there, then you didn't hear it, and it gets forgotten along the way. So let me farm in a little bit more background here. Uh, think about this. Matthew, he wrote a gospel. He was an apostle, one of the 12 apostles. John, that wrote the fourth gospel, he's one of the 12 apostles. In the rest of the New Testament, you get a big chunk written by Paul. He's a later apostle. You get later letters written by John the Apostle, Peter the Apostle. This gospel is written by Mark. Mark was not an apostle. So why is it included in our Bible as being just as much the authoritative Word of God? And the reason is the ancient church testifies to the fact that and the internal evidence, the internal language and vocabulary and style of the gospel of Mark corroborates that Mark was writing down what he was told by the Apostle Peter. In fact, if you look, for instance, if you look in the book of Acts at uh, a sermon that the Apostle Peter preaches and you look at the structure of Peter's sermon in Acts 10, it's almost exactly the structure of the Gospel of Mark. All right, now, now back to the question. Why is it important that you get these details about so Jesus, you know, he's been teaching all day. I'm sure he's sweaty and tired and you know, he doesn't change clothes or bring anything with him. He just gets on the boat as he is and there were other boats there. If you were writing a mythic account to kind of create this you know, myth of this, um, of this Christ figure, would you put that there? And the answer is no because it wouldn't help the story. So why is it there? It's the residue of eyewitness account. You know, that, that Peter's just remembering it as it happened. He just got on the boat as he was. There were other boats there. He was asleep on the cushion. Does, is that of cosmic importance? No. What are you getting, though? What is important? It's eyewitness account, all right? So that's not the main gist, but, you know, for no extra charge, I'm giving you that. All right, now let's pick back up here. Verse 37. The great storm. A great windstorm arose. Now, again... Think about who we're dealing with. Not everybody on the boat, but some of the men on the boat have worked the Sea of Galilee vocationally, and they know the norm. Like a flight attendant knows the norm of turbulence and storms and bumps. They know the norm. And if you read probably any commentary on this passage, or maybe if you have a study Bible with notes, it probably points out the topography that played into this. The Sea of Galilee is around 700 feet below sea level. So kind of in a bowl, way down, warm, moist air, low. And then up above it are peaks, including the, uh, Mount Hermon, which is over 9,000 feet high, snow-capped, I think, for, for most of the year. What happens when cold air and warm, moist air bump into each other? You get, you get big old storms. But that's the norm. But from their vantage point, what is this? It's abnormal. A few years ago, uh, a, a big line of storms came through Greenville, maybe two or three years ago, and um, you know we're, we're, we're getting the, the warnings on the TV, and maybe the cell phones went off, I don't know. But uh, straight-line winds were in this storm. You know, straight-line winds, they're not, they're not tornadoes, it's just, it'll just blast for a while. And I think it got, I think, only as high as 60 miles an hour. Well... In our neighborhood, it did that for maybe tops, two seconds. And our roof made a noise that it's never made before. And Dana and I kind of made eye contact, you know, trying to 
exhibit good parental calm and just said, all right, uh, we're going to just uh, step in the hallway for a minute. <laughs> kind of camp poise, you know, okay, campers, everyone in the hallway. But I mean, I think there was just that second where we looked at each other and, and, and it stopped. We didn't know if it was going to keep doing it, but it was, it was the sense of the house just made a noise it's never made before. We'd been there long enough to know the norm and we had crossed over into that was abnormal. It scared us. The disciples and Jesus are on a boat completely exposed, just completely exposed. There aren't even windshields, you know, on boats like this. It's just the craft. It's just the hull, essentially, and the sails. The the wind is pushing waves over into the boat, and this group of men cannot bail quick enough, and it terrifies them. Now, let me tell you, as a preacher... This is where I feel torn. And let me be transparent here. Um, Here's my dilemma. My dilemma is, on the one hand, preachers, sometimes we take famous Bible stories and we we allegorize them. Or we just kind of of turn them into moral stories. And the most famous one is David and Goliath. I mean, just for for 2,000 years, preachers have been saying things like, so you've got this giant and he's squared off against you. You know, we all have our giants. What's your giant? And you think, hmm, I think Mondays. I hate Mondays. And so, so that like the point of 1 Samuel 17 is that God can get you through Mondays. Now, the thing is, I do believe that. I do believe that he will indeed help you with your giants and, and your storms. You can see where I'm headed with this. But that that's not the great point of the text. That text, like any text, is pointing us ahead to Christ even as we learn things from the characters in it, right? And I feel that a little bit with this one. I, like, on the one hand, I don't want to allegorize it and go, hmm, what are your storms? And, you know, and is Jesus on your boat? Although, I would want him to be. So, okay, so there's that side of it. But the other side of it is that can we not, though, identify with what they're going through? Because... You think about how fishermen might have talked around the Sea of Galilee in the first century. Maybe they still talk that way of just, uh, hey, you know, people get killed out on the water. It happens. That's just real life. And, okay, so that sounds realistic and, you know, being grown up and mature and realistic until it's you. And then it's terrifying. And we could all fill in that sentence in some way. You know, people get fill in the blank. That's just real life. People get killed. That's just real life until you know someone that gets killed. People get divorced. That's just real life until you go through one. Or your parents go through one. Or someone you love goes through one. Uh, people get terminally ill until it's, until it's you, and then it's utterly terrifying. When... when these are first century men that, that are outside all the time. When they say it's a great storm, it's, it was a terrifying, sustained, abnormally severe storm. Then there's the great calm. Now, think about what happened next. Verse 38. Jesus is in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Again, is that of cosmic importance? No, it's eyewitness account because that's what happened. And what else are the gospel writers letting us see? He's actually human. 
In other words, he's not pretending. He's not pretending to be asleep of, in just a second, I'm going to get up and do it. Man, they're going to learn a great lesson about faith and who I really am. This is playing out just, okay, he's walking over to wake me up. He is actually, in his humanity, exhausted. He taught and preached and ministered and touched people all day long, and he's exhausted sleeping through a severe storm. So they come to him and actually have to wake him up. And as a real human being, I mean, he would blink and kind of have to, have to come to. And then what happens? Verse 38. Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Now, the text doesn't say, did he merely just sit up on the cushion? It would probably be hard to stand up you know, make like a you know, dramatic pose. If it's really this choppy and this bad and, and water is all up in the, in, the, in, the, in the boat. He may have just sat up and his vocabulary is like the vocabulary that you would, like, like a teacher would use with unruly students. You could translate what he's saying as silence. And the text doesn't say that the wind diminished greatly so that it was just a normal, pleasant breeze. It says, great calm. It didn't die down. It stopped. Okay, now that's, of course, unbelievable. But then on top of that, if, if that was all that had happened, the Sea of Galilee would have stayed turbulent maybe for half a day. But he also says to the waves... Be still. Now, I don't want to get into too many theatrics here, but just picture the motion of the boat. The boat is filling with water, and the the waves have been crashing over. And what what they've been experiencing is... Just bathtub. Unbelievable. Um, picture, okay, picture this. Do you remember in the, in the second Star Wars movie when the X-Wing fighter, when, when Luke is training with Yoda and the X-Wing fighter sunk into the swamp and Luke tries to use his skills with the force to get it, to get it out and he can't get it out and then, you know, Yoda kind of hobbles up there and, you know, and... and uh, <laughs> And it just beautifully just comes out and just, you know, like perfectly sets itself down on the ground. Picture, uh, picture that you're in a car with somebody and, and a car is about to hit you. You're about to have a horrible accident and there's that just yuck nanosecond where you know you're about to get hit. What, what if the person in the car with you kind of went and like just the car lifted up away from danger, the other car goes underneath it and just sat down safely on the grass what if the person then turned to you and said, tell me, how are you doing spiritually? You would say, ah, I, I don't even know how to feel right now. I don't know what to do. You know, not, not the time to ask me about my, my, my spiritual life right now. That is precisely what Jesus did. That the, okay, it was no coincidence, in case you didn't pick up on this, that our call to worship from Psalm 89 talks about God stilling the storm and the waves. And it was no coincidence that Psalm 107, the Old Testament reading, is about Him doing the same. 
when people are out on the sea in storms. In other words, the disciples, as Jews, they grew up singing psalms and learning psalms about that Yahweh can control the weather. He can rebuke wind. He can still the stormy sea. And they just watched their rabbi do that. And that's when he asked them about their heart. They've never seen anything like that. They've never read Mark 4, if I can put it that way. They don't know this story. They just lived it. They're living it. Do you still have no faith? That's amazing. Jesus will nudge on people about that any time. This came up in our community group this past week. For example, another text, John 11, when uh, Jesus' dear friend Lazarus died, and Jesus makes his way to Lazarus' home. Lazarus is dead, but his two sisters are alive, and Jesus was very close to them. And so he's talking to one of the sisters about it. And again, again, they don't know the story. They just know their brother died. They don't know how this is going to turn out. So they're in grief and mourning. Probably much more... It would be almost like losing a husband because he might have been the male stability. He may have been the income in that family. We don't know. But it's huge. We can at least say that. And they're grieving. And so Jesus says to one of the sisters, your brother will rise again. To which she says, well, I know he'll, he'll rise at the final resurrection. And Jesus says, very famous passage, I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes in me, though he die, yet will he live. Many a funeral sermon has been preached on that. But he said one more thing. Do you believe this? And I think there's a part of us that would want to say, this is not the time and the place to ask someone about their spiritual views. She's hurting and she's grieving. And the thing is, with Jesus, it is always the time. And it is always the place. And here are these disciples whose minds have been blown. They know real weather and they know real danger. And they were looking death in the face. And right then, when they've had their minds blown, he says, do you have faith or not? And he could ask us the same thing. You're unemployed right now and all you can think about is your unemployment. Do you have faith? You're lonely. You want a relationship. You want a significant other. You think about it constantly. You think that is your greatest need. Right now, he is looking at you and saying, but do you have faith in me? And and I would say this too, just by way of observation. This, This is indicative of the fact that you can talk to Jesus in a way that is faithless. That not all talking to Jesus is with faith and and a kind that he likes and approves of. And what might that look like for us? Well, what it might look like is, I think especially when we pray for desperate situations, someone is just on a downhill run toward death or someone just has no interest in the things of God, no interest in Jesus or church or Bible or anything like that, and we're praying for this person, but the way we're talking to Jesus is like, but we all know what's going to happen, don't we? They're going to die. Or this person's never going to become a Christian. As if, there are, as if there's this big overarching rea- you know, uh, banner called reality. There's this big overarching reality that's like, the laws of physics 
scientific law, laws of logic, inevitability, and that up underneath it, along with us, is Jesus. And we're kind of looking at him saying, really, if there's anything you can do to kind of alleviate that, I mean, if you can, he is not under anything. He is fully God. Fully man so much that he can be exhausted and sleep through wind and storm. Fully God. So you get this great calm, and then, ironically, they become more frightened. The great fear. Um, Verse 41. And they were filled with great fear. In Greek it says, and they feared a great fear. And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Think about it this way. The, Mark has told us already, again, we're, we're diving in here, but this is part of a larger book. Mark has told us before now that Jesus has done things and people have been amazed and his disciples have been amazed, but he hasn't yet said that they were, they were scared of him. And now he's saying they're frightened of him. They were were deathly afraid of the storm, but now they fear a great fear of him. When they say, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him, it's, it's as if they're saying, if he can do that, and they don't know how to finish the sentence. It's like, if he can do that, dot, 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 ellipsis, and they're scared to finish it. What are the gospel writers pushing us to come to grips with? Is that He is fully God. That's going to be so important. It's, of course, understatement of the year. But to see, when you see Jesus doing things, it's God doing things. When you hear Jesus' emotion about things, it's God's emotion. When you see Him lean into and oppose self-righteousness, it's not just because He's a witty teacher and he's sticking it to the man. It's God opposing self-righteousness. When he goes to bat for the disenfranchised, when he cares about the poor, when nobody else cares about the poor, that's God doing it. But let me say this too, because um, it may be that just, as we're talking about this display of power, that may not necessarily make you love him. Or if if you're a parent, it may not necessarily make you want to tell your child all about him. Uh, there's, there's just one other detail I want to look at before we're done. And, and here's the thing. Uh, yeah, I mentioned Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this story. <clears throat> and they emphasize or, or de-emphasize different aspects. But there's one detail about this account that Matthew and Mark and Luke all record. And it's the vocabulary of what the men said when they're dying and Jesus is asleep. They, they used an interesting verb. They didn't say, we're drowning. They didn't say, we're capsizing. They didn't say, we're sinking. They didn't even say, we're dying. What did they say? We're, do you not care that we're perishing? A few nights ago, Dana and I are flipping through the channels and we, we, uh, we come across the end of Meet the Parents. 
Ben Stiller, Robert De Niro. And it was a, I hadn't seen it in a while. It was a reminder that that is an entire comedy built around awkwardness. Just gut-wrenching awkwardness, almost all at, at Ben Stiller's uh, character's expense. And, you know, he's engaged to this girl, and he's meeting the parents, and it's just the, the wheels are just coming completely off. Well, almost at the end of the movie, when you feel like it can't get, get much worse, it's like every lie that Ben Stiller's character has told is just starting to just avalanche on top of him, and it's happening as he's with what he thought was going to be his future in-laws, and they're all just looking at him. And so it's at this moment that he kind of decides he's going to pull out his trump card, sort of his ace, and that is that his fiance's dad, Robert De Niro's character, was in the CIA, and he's supposed to be out of the agency. But Ben Stiller's character has watched him having phone, secret phone conversations about Thailand. And he's even heard him speaking in Thai on the phone to somebody. And so he's, you know, he understands he's still working in the agency and he's lying to his family. And so he pulls out his trump card to like save face and he says, Hey Jack, what about Thailand? Have you told the family about Thailand? And what happens, as you all know, Robert De Niro's character all along, he's not in the agency anymore. He has been planning a secret honeymoon gift for this other child getting married, and it's this you know, exorbitant honeymoon in Thailand, and it's all been secret. So that it blows up again in Ben Stiller's face. Now, he, he, okay, and I know all analogies break down, especially between, like, Robert De Niro, and Jesus. <laughs> but bear with me. The parallel, if you can see it, is uh, that the zinger, like what the word that's supposed to be the zinger, like, aha, Thailand, ends up being, that was what actually showed all that was best about Robert De Niro's character. It, that, that was like all that was most loving and generous and caring about him. And it is intriguing to me that the Greek verb that records the disciples' words, do you not care that we're perishing? In the Gospels, that verb is used in several different ways. It covers a range. But two dominant ways that it's used, one is for what sinners deserve from God. And the most famous example would be what? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish. And when it says perish, it's not talking about just perishing in a car wreck, perishing on the sea, perishing in, in a crash, or even perishing by natural causes. It means that one day, we, whatever means, we die. Through whatever means we die, then you stand before the living God who made us. And either you live or you perish. And to save us from that perishing, God so loves the world that He sends His one and only Son. The other way that verb is used is to describe what the scribes and Pharisees plotted to do to Jesus. That He would do something, or He would embarrass them, or He would challenge them, and, it's, and it would say, and then from that moment on, they plotted how to, and the English translations will usually say, destroy Him. Apolumi, the same Greek verb. 
how much does our God care that we're perishing? He cares so much, He will enter into our own mortality. He will enter into our own humanity, into our fallen world, and let Himself perish brutally that we might never perish. That's who God is. And let me say this too. if, If that's who He is, and He's that good, He's that good, and He's that powerful that He can speak to weather and change it, Here's what that means. That, you know, dare we say it, in your storm, with your giants, whatever that is, your depression, your addiction, your secret that hasn't come out yet, your doubts, your skepticism about the Bible, your fears that you and I can come to Him with all of them and put them before Him and know He is man enough to empathize. And if I may say it this way, He is so fully God that He'll take care of everything I need. Even my very soul. That's the good news. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you know us better than we know ourselves. We feel like we know ourselves pretty well. But you see into the very inner recesses of our hearts and you're the one that knit us together and sees everything about us that we're completely known to you. And so you know that for all of us, there are areas of our heart where this just has not gone yet. And so we doubt that you are powerful enough to help us or that you're good enough to help us or that you love us enough to help us. And Father, whether that's for the person sitting here that that, that has grown up with this stuff and heard this story many times and believes it but is just doubtful that you care about her, about him, just drive these things down deep into our hearts. For the person here who has never fully or even somewhat believed at all, Lord, grant grant him, grant her faith, even this morning, to place themselves at your feet and say, have mercy on me, be to me both God and King and elder brother. And we ask this in his name. Amen.